Changes from episode to episode. I am Joe Gastoner, and joining me again this week is uh, Ed Davis from A Mighty Flying Block. Hello. Hi there. How the devil are you, sir? Better than last time, as you can tell. I've desexified my voice. Well, it's still sexy. It's just not husky. Yeah. Well, we I got notes from the executives behind this podcast, and they said it was it was much too sexy before. And uh, you had to dial yeah. it back. It was very much like when Elvis was on the Ed Sullivan show. It's just it, was, it, it would drove people crazy. Scale. Yeah, absolutely. Well, this week uh, the theme is returns, and it's an interesting approach to the theme this week because we are recreating, in essence, what we refer to as uh, the Lost Cast, which is a podcast we recorded as the second ever podcast of this series, but we lost it due to my own technical incompetence. Um, and what survived of that? Ed? I believe the only bit that survived of it was about twenty seconds, which was our test recording of it. Um, it was me talking to um, Adam Batty. Uh, erstwhile, rest in peace <laughs> erstwhile um, co-host of this yeah. uh, podcast um, about whether or not Roger Avery the Oscar winning co-writer of Pulp Fiction and Beowulf um, had uh, murdered someone <laughs> Which, because I'd mentioned it the first podcast we recorded when we recorded it under the uh, under a legally dubious name yeah. I talked about Roger Avery committing vehicular manslaughter and you left it out like a coward. I did. Despite the fact that when I looked it up, he did do that. I okay. pled guilty. And so, oh, so that's fine. Yeah, so um, when when we were doing the test, I think the only thing of it was me just going, he did kill someone! Yeah, and um, yeah, his lawyers couldn't get in touch yeah. uh, via the, the usual sources. So we're talking about returns um, uh, <laughs> this week. The person um, who killed will not return. Oh no, he's definitely he's brown bros. Um, we're going to be talking about returns in the sense we're talking about sequels, uh, homecomings, films about returns, um, and uh, yeah, any way we can kind of squeeze any kind of life yeah. out of that theme we possibly can. We can't quite remember what we talked about on the podcast yeah. last time, so we're just kind of freestyling and making up. But what I can remember is I did start the podcast by reading a quote from a book, um, which will hopefully get things going. It's the book called Which Lie Did I Tell? The second film, uh, film book memoir by William Goldman. And on sequels, he writes, and I'd like to discuss this afterwards, Ed, so yeah, sure. you can listen. Okay. That'd be brilliant. He says, sequels are whores movies. And the reason why is that the pulse of why they write the original film is always creative, and the pulse for a sequel is always financial. So they are never of similar quality. Discuss. Okay. Well, yeah, I think that it's it, that's, that rule, I think, is, is too definitive to really apply in the real world. I don't think that that's entirely true. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's largely true. Um, I think if you look at something like, I don't know, Ghostbusters perhaps, the second Ghostbusters film really only exists because uh, they wanted more money. There's no real reason. It's not like they had loads of dangling plot threads from the first Ghostbusters uh, that they needed to wrap up. It's not like those characters had anywhere else to go. And Winston Zedmore never became any... <laughs> less of a shoehorn yeah. character <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah I think that in some cases I mean it's, it's I think it's different when you've got something like your franchise like you know where it's based on a series of books where the first film was entered into because of financial reasons anyway because yeah. uh, if you're adapting something like The Hunger Games the reason you adapt The Hunger Games is because 
because you're going to make a shitload of money. Mm-hmm. Um, but and then you'll of course adapt the sequels because they will also make a shitload of money. The the whole reason I mean I imagine everyone involved in the Hunger Games wanted to make the film because they were fans of the book, you know, and, and obviously the writer of the book wrote the film as well. She co-wrote the film, so obviously okay. she has a a vested interest in it coming across well. But the reason anyone commits, I think, seventy eight million dollars to make a film is because they want to make that back. And when there's two books in the series afterwards, they also want to make them because it's you know it's solid money for like um, three or four years in a row, especially if they split the third book in two. They probably will. Yeah. Um, I'd just like to explain to any listeners that um, we are not recording this under our usual circumstances with uh, newfangled technical wizardry. So if you can hear quad bikes, uh, police sirens, uh, anything going about, we're not in some kind of industrial workyard. Yeah. Uh, it's just uh, my house is on a main road. So, yeah. you know, deal. Yeah, deal it's with atmosphere. Um, so um, but, do, you, do you think that uh, uh, any kind of... Um, we'll come round to later in the podcast talking about sequels that are slightly maybe an improvement or an expansion mm-hmm. on the original source material. Um, but what can we think of, uh, just off the top of our heads, and it should be easy to think of, sequels that really are corporate shilling at its worst? Um, I think sort of things... Uh, it happened a lot in the 80s. You can see things like you know, the Police Academy films where they just ran that into the ground and just kept going and going. They never really got any, got any... They got, like, worse. Really worse. Yeah. To the point where you didn't think they could get any worse. And then they made the one with uh, Moscow where you go to Russia. Yeah. And that that was just the... I think that's the idea of... Christopher Lee's in that. Is he really? No, he is, yeah. I haven't seen it in a really long time. No, you didn't. I, I saw the other day that Love Film have um, added the first four Police Academy films uh, onto their streaming service. And I was just kind of like, well, if you're not going to give me the full story, I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not interested. <laughs> I'm not interested. But, um, you know, I think you see that, um, all the Beverly Hills Cop films after the first one. Oh, um, the first one's great. The first one's great. The second and third one. The third one in particular is awful. Is it the one set in theme park? Yeah. It's awful. really, really bad. Um, film I watched recently, I watched 48 Hours for the first time, which I know you were a big I'm fan of. I'm a big of. fan of, yes. Another 48 hours, even the title, no, no. that sounds really half-arsed, doesn't it? Really dim. Oh, I'll tell you what, um, I was talking about this today, actually, and uh, I don't want to give the impression that I talk about the film Dude, Where's My Car a lot, Yeah. but they made Dude, Where's My Car, and I don't know if you've seen it, and Yeah. it's, um, funny enough, it's no Seven Seal, No. <laughs> um, but they were going to make a sequel, Yeah. and I was all behind it, because yeah. the title was, seriously, Dude, Where's My Car? I know, that's a great, that's a great, uh way of naming a sequel I, don't it is, I hate just adding a number yeah it's just stupid it's just coming up with some novel novel twist on it or that like the Fast and the Furious people just went back to the original title yeah except they dropped the uh, the, the, the definitive articles <laughs> so it's Fast and Furious um, or they, they each one's devolved so the fifth one was Fast Five didn't even need the rest of the words I know it's just gonna, the next one's just going to be six. Fast with six A's <laughs> I, I think it's just going to be called Six possibly yeah Oh, I've not seen any of those. I've seen no. I've not seen any of the. Fast uh, I've only seen Fast Five, which I enjoyed because it's essentially a heist film set okay. in, a, in a glamorous locale. Um, but apparently, if you know about the mythology of it all, like, <laughs> the mythology of yeah, Fast because Fast actually the chronology of it, I, had to, I looked into this because someone on Twitter asked, and it was the guy who runs the Shiznit, Ali Gray. Oh, yeah. He asked if there's ever been a sequel. Like two a, a series where there's been a sequ- a sequel to a prequel, and okay. I I looked up 
and apparently Fast Five is a s- happens chronologically before the third one, as does Fast the fourth one. Is so in, the th- the third right. one's the one set in Japan, and then Tokyo Drift. Tokyo Drift, mm-hmm. and then the fourth one happens before that. The fifth one happens after that, but before <laughs> before the third one. So there's a character apparently in the fifth one who goes to Japan and dies. And is he his own dad? <laughs> right. Is it I, wish like, it, I wish that's how it worked. No. It's like Primer, essentially, but over five films. Yeah. So Vin Diesel was not in the sequel, but he comes back for the threequel. Yeah. And the prequel. And the prequel and the prequel sequel. To, to, to the, the sequel. sequel. To the prequel. Of the prequel. And I think the sixth one's probably also before the third one. It's just like, it's a mess. I, 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 kind, of, I kind of admire the uh, way in which the people who have made that franchise have, at this point seem to have completely abandon logic. And the space-time continuum. And the space-time continuum. Uh, but isn't um, Last Crusade uh, that a one sequel, ha- but Temple of Doom is a prequel? Yeah, Temple of Doom's a prequel. So is Last Crusade the sequel mm. to a prequel? I think it's a... Does that make Raiders of the Lost Ark a sequel to a prequel? I think the Raiders of the Lost Ark, it, I think Last Crusade is a sequel to, the to Raiders... And Temple of Doom, because if if Last Crusade happened after directly after Temple of Doom but before Raiders, right, it would be a sequel to a prequel. But instead, it's just a prequel to sequel. a sequel. <laughs> <laughs> this is all very confusing. <laughs> yeah, but but um, essentially, to get back to the point about whether or not I think most of the time sequels are cash grabs. Sometimes those cash grabs lead to great art. Okay. Just almost incidentally, like I think an example we'll probably talk about later, maybe the second Godfather film. Because uh-huh. the reason that got made is because the first Godfather made a huge amount of money. And unexpectedly as well. Unexpectedly, like a massive hit. Um, I'd say probably Batman Returns possibly counts as that as well, or The Dark Knight as well, both sequels that exist because the first one was fairly successful. I mean, like the first Batman film was yeah, huge, mm-hmm. that was like massive. It was actually. Uh, in terms of the industry a hugely influential film because it was the, one of the first films to make more money outside the States than inside the States in which right. it was a par- huge paradigm shift but um, you know those films you know the, the, they essentially the success of the first one allowed the creators to have carte blanche like Batman Returns is like a uh, an homage to German expressionism that just happens to star Batman because like everything about that film is just so exaggerated and expressionistic mm. and it's cool it looks really interesting and it's, it's a weird and odd little film that happens to cost a huge amount of money um, and you know The Dark Knight you know explores themes of chaos and anarchy and you know this political subtext and stuff but the only reason those films get made the first one made a lot of money and then they happen to give their creators a certain amount of freedom I think mm. it depends on the creative people because Godfather Coppola was under massive Constraints yeah. and pressure. Um, whereas Godfather Two, they were like go they, nuts. Yeah, Godfather like, Three, too much. Yeah, too much freedom. Because like, wasn't it? They wanted to fire the cinematographer. They didn't think Brando was right. They didn't well, they think wanted Pacino to, was right. Well, because he he fought for Pacino. They wanted Robert Redford, yeah. who were uh, not, hmm. not a good choice. Not Italian. Good, good, uh, <laughs> yeah, good actor, but not the right choice for Michael Corleone. Yeah, no, I can't really think of too many uh, examples where. They, if you look, if you got all the sequels in the world mm-hmm. and put them into kind of like a pie chart, yeah, ninety nine percent of them would be absolute shills. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I mean, the, the straight to video sequel yeah. market is um, is a disgraceful. Yeah, I, d- I think that of, of films. If you were to look at them as like a Venn diagram, mm-hmm. I think 
the crossover between films, uh, sequels that were made for money, and sequels that were that had some sort of artistic merit. Yeah. Is very that's a very slim crossover. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that there aren't sequels that are made for reasons that aren't monetary. Um, I would say a clear example of that would be something like Richard, Richard Linklater's um, Before Sunset. Yeah. Because the first one was, you know, critically beloved. It was a film that was was really well received. Uh, didn't make a load of money. No. It's not the sort of film that makes a load of money because it's just two people having a conversation. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, it'd be like if they made a franchise out of my dinner with Andre. Um, I'd love that. <laughs> it'd be great. My dinner with Andre 3000. <laughs> my dinner with Andre the Giant. Uh, I can't think of any other famous Peter Andre. My dinner with Peter Andre. Every time a famous Andre rises up, Louis, oh. Louis Marle gets on the phone. Yeah. I love My Dinner with Andre. It's, it's a great amazing. film, but I'm saying like... The community parody of that's fantastic. Yeah. Directed by Richard A. Awadi. Yes. I know so, yeah. Amazing. But um, soon to be seen in Neighbourhood Watch with Ben Stiller. Richard Awadi? Yeah. Wow. Well, we'll hop off that tangent bus yeah. and get back on the subject of sequels. Um, is there any films you can think of that you would like to see sequelised? And um, I'm just going to commentate, Ed is consulting a list. Consulting a list. Uh, there's one that one that we were talking about beforehand, which I'm kind of I'm kind of fifty fifty on whether I would like to see it sequelised, which is Barton Fink, the yeah. uh, Coen Brothers film, the film they made uh, when they were suffering from. Well, they wrote it while they were suffering from writer's block, trying to write Miller's Crossing. Crossing yeah. um, and so they wrote a film about a man with writer's block. And it's brilliant. It's one of the best films about the creative process I've ever seen. It's a wonderful evocation of sort of old timey Hollywood, uh, you know, nineteen thirties. Um, got a very good performance by John Mahoney as a William Faulkner type um, mm-hmm. writer, and it's just got a wonderful performance by uh, <laughs> by John Goodman as a, as a pretty much demonic figure. Yeah. Um, and they've talked about doing a sequel which they would call Old Thing, which would be about the same character but 20 years later it's the 50s it's the height of the uh, communist witch hunt through Hollywood uh, so the, it sounds like the, the Fast and the Furious cast are driving by yeah. my window but you know it would, it would be set in the 50s it'd be all about the blacklist and it'd be about you know Barton Fink as this sort of jaded character who spent years like uh, slogging away in Hollywood and that sounds interesting to me but I kind of wouldn't want it to be the same character because I think that the ending of Barton Fink which um, I won't ruin people who haven't seen it, but they should see it because it's really great. It's really, it, it's kind of perfect, and it's the sort of ending, the, the sort of films I really wouldn't like to see sequelised, the films that end at a point of ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, a sequel instantly removes that ambiguity because then it's just like, oh yeah, and this happened, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I think that that would be lost if they made a sequel to Barton Fink because they'd kind of have to address the point at which the first film ended yeah. and, and I'd like to see them make a film about Hollywood in the 1950s and the blacklist and all that sort of thing I think that'd be a really good film I think the Coen brothers would do really well with it because they're on a bit of a streak at the moment they've made yeah. some really really great films in the last few years but I wouldn't want them to do it with, with Barton Fink you know kind of flip side of that I'd like to talk about Lethal Weapon 2 okay <laughs> because um, I'm going to spoil the end of Lethal Weapon 2 yeah. because um, it's a terrible film. Yeah. Uh, it's a political statement against the uh, South African apartheid regime 
it's uh, about as subtle as a clinic irrigation. Yeah. Um, but at the end of in its uh, defence, it doesn't make apartheid seem like a good idea. No, it doesn't do quite make, shit the bed that badly. No, it does make it kind of like a panto. Uh, <laughs> though, at the end of Lethal Weapon Two, Riggs and Murtar, um storm. I think a, a South African government compound. Yeah. Uh, against the wishes of their superiors, with after handing in their badges, yep. kill everybody. Yeah. And then when they come back for Leaf Weapon Three, they, they just start again. Yeah. So this has all been brushed under the carpet. International incident totally avoided. Yeah. And then Riggs is living in a caravan outside eating dog biscuits, trying to go smoking. Yeah. And it's like a sitcom. I mean, that's a very convenient way to wrap things up. Yeah. I mean, it, that, that is that. Admittedly, that is a way. Of a good it. sequel can can <laughs> compensate for any amount of narrative debt that you've accrued yeah. in a previous film just kind of uh, shove it under the rug under the rug it's fine yeah, don't yeah. worry about it oh do you remember that South African incident when we murdered all those diplomats oh no me neither it's fine <laughs> <laughs> let's move on um, is there any films you desperately don't want to see sequelised oh so many um, Ed is going back to his list I'm going to I'm going to leave it open now rather than to that's a good move yeah um, let's have a look here um Ghostbusters, I think. I mean, we've already said. I've already said. I don't think the second one's up to much. So I don't think a second, a third one, twenty odd years after the second one, yeah. is going to be. They are really pushing it, aren't they? They're really wanting to do it, but. And every solution they talk about just sounds terrible. It's like you know, oh, they're going to introduce a younger generation of Ghostbusters. Great and, idea. You know, it's just like oh, that seems really hacky. Uh, Bill Murray doesn't want to do it. He's so they're going to replace him with. But Seth Rogen yeah I think the Seth Rogen was mooted as one of the people um, and then you know saying that Bill Murray says he'd only do it if he died in the first 15 minutes which admittedly is a funny thing to say about like but even he's just basically at this point said fuck it no <laughs> I don't really want to do it no. um, and he's like he is the, the I mean that that first film doesn't work without Bill Murray blimey tractor pulling <laughs> outside there's a, you mean know, there's lots of things about that film that work, mm -hmm. but he is the glue that holds that thing together. His performance is so hilarious. Mm. Um, if you try and make a Ghostbusters film without him, without that character or that character played by someone else, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. So I really wouldn't want to see that. Um, the mooted Blade Runner sequel, um, which was talked about a lot last year, mm -hmm. um, which seems to have died down now. Ridley Scott said they were going to do a sequel to Blade Runner, but it would be like in the same world and it might not feature Deckard. Again, that's another thing, another example of a sequel I wouldn't want to see because I don't want it to explain the ambiguity away of the ending of Blade Runner. Because the mm -hmm. whole thing about Blade Runner is is Deckard a replicant? Is he not? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think he is. Harrison Ford doesn't think so. No. Um, he clearly hasn't read the script. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I don't think there's... Uh, I don't think anything would be gained from that. And also, I don't think that that Ridley Scott revisiting a world that he did a great job with, you know, 30 years ago would necessarily be a good thing because he's a different person. And he's, you know, I think he's proved conclusively in the last sort of 10, 20 years or so that he is not up to the level of filmmaker that he can be mm -hmm. since he's moved from making a film every few years to one every year yeah. the quality of his work has, has nosedived quite noticeably like reaching a deer with uh, you know stuff like the, some of the films he's made with Russell Crowe like A Good Year or um, um, the Robin Hood film which was the last thing he did before Prometheus which is due out this year 
which I'm. How do you feel about that? I am very dubious about it. Um, There's been another trailer release this week. I, I haven't seen I've it. not seen it, so we're in a brilliant position to comment. <laughs> well, no, it's just that I like I liked the idea when they were talking about it's a. It's set in the same universe, but because they seem to be bringing in so much of the iconography of Alien, mm-hmm. I don't know. It just seems like they're they're hewing a little too close to the to the, the original world for my liking. It's a bit like the the Star Wars prequels. There, there's literally no original ideas, so there's yeah. just so many references to and like so many needlessly wasted time in the characters. Yeah, which doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Anna, Anakin built C three PO. What? Why of course he did. Yeah, of course he did. Why yeah. wouldn't he have built him? Uh, the princess dressed like Princess Leia. Yeah. Or because um, she's her daughter. Yeah. Or the future or the past? No, she's. Oh shit! It's Fast and Furious again. Um, is her mum? You said mum. Yeah. Is it? A, it's a prequel. Yeah. But a sequel. Yeah, but a sequel to the prequel. Damn it. Um. And then, uh, you know, I, I just think that there's a danger best uh, illustrated by the Star Wars prequels and by. Um, you know, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of Crystal Skull. Basically, anything featuring George Lucas. But you know, if a filmmaker tries to revisit their early work, it just doesn't seem to. It doesn't. Everything just feels off because they're trying to compete with their younger self. Yeah. I think, you know, if the, if a Blade Runner sequel has to happen, I'd love to see it directed by like Duncan Jones or someone. You mm-hmm. know, someone who loves that material but would want to put their own stamp on it rather than feeling that they were competing against, you know, a younger version of themselves, you know. I think Duncan Jones, obviously, Blade Runner's his favourite film, so I don't know if he would even want to make a sequel to it. I think he might be scared. Mm. Or, or that he might be, you know, too afraid of fucking it up. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that there's there's something to be said for leaving things alone yeah. <laughs> after such a long period of time. Especially because I don't imagine there's a huge amount of uh, commercial... Um, appeal for Blade Runner I mean the first one wasn't a big hit and it's at best a cult film over mm. the years you know it's yeah it's one of those things that you you, you assume mm. it was a big deal yeah but it died it really wasn't yeah yeah um, it's like how stupid the idea of doing a prequel to The Thing was yeah, yeah when that The hit. Thing was a hit on video yeah the, hit was a, the Thing was a hit on video for very specific reasons to do with the like the effects and the mood and everything like that you do a prequel with CGI, instantly you're turning off everyone who, who likes it in the first place. Yeah, but also it is something that was always a cool property anyway. Like no matter how big it became on video, mm. that still doesn't mean that like the majority of people have heard of it. Yeah, especially because you know, I mean, I love the thing, but that's the most generic title in the world. It is. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard for people to get excited about that. Yeah. Um, speaking of. Um leaving it way too late to sequelise in the sequels that I really don't want to see happen. Um, this week it was announced um, that, um, you know, American filmmaking's brightest light, Brett Ratner, is going to remake, uh, sorry, sequelise yeah. um, Midnight Run. Yeah. Which, I mean, I take offence to, <laughs> because Midnight Run is, is one of my all time favourite films. And it already has been sequelised with different actors. Yeah. It was sequelised for television yeah. um, with um, Shooter McGavin from uh, the Happy Gilmore films as the Jack Walsh character. But this is going to be what they call a direct sequel with yeah. uh, Robert De Niro coming back to uh, you know just retread the same old shit. And yeah. I don't really understand other than the fact that Ratner, Ratner is obviously a fan because he's that age. Yeah. Um, 
what he really thinks we're going to gain from seeing what happened to Robert De Niro 20 years later mm. having what did his coffee shop that he started at the end of the first film fail and you know, he has to go back to family hunting you know what I mean it's, and yeah. you know he, at the end of uh, Midnight Run I don't want to spoil it but I'm going to he brings down the mob yeah <laughs> he could probably get a job with the cops now yeah yeah uh, what's he going to be doing is that's he a good thing to have on your CV it is yeah yeah brought down mob Jimmy Serrano he's gone down but like what's I mean what possible who, who ordered the Midnight Run yeah. sequel Especially because, I like, certainly didn't. I mean, like, Midnight Run is a great film, and it was a hit at the time. Mm-hmm. But I think it's one of those films that was really big at the time, which seems to have fallen off in popularity. It's not a film that people instantly think of as, as like, you know, a classic, even though it's great. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, it's one of those things which was... You know, I don't see... W- the reason you would sequelize film from a commercial point of view, which is the only reason why someone's making a Midnight Run sequel... Mm is if you could guarantee that the audience would still be there for it. And I don't see like I don't see what young young people who are obviously the target demographic of most film yeah. marketing anyway. I don't see what they'd get from a sequel to a film that most people don't remember. They might get something from a remake. Yeah, a remake I can understand. A, yeah, what does Robert De Niro mean to, you know, the yeah. more kids who like Twilight. Especially because I think that there are, you know, this is a depressing thing. There are kids who would be old enough to see a sequel to Midnight Run for whom Robert De Niro is the guy who's in those terrible Meet the Parents movies. Yes. Like, they they have not been alive at a point where Robert De Niro has been relevant. Mm. And And that's horrible. Yes, that is a dreadful, (laughs) dreadful thought. Because we still hang on to the idea that Robert De Niro is is a a masterful actor uh, whose work is of the highest quality, but he is now... I think we're fair to say being rubbish for as long as he was good. I don't know. I mean, he was good from, you know, if you see High Mom, the film he did with, with, with Brian De Palma, which isn't a great film, but it's an interesting film, and he didn't, mm-hmm. he's good in it. So he's good from the late 60s through so until about at least... 1998. Yeah. So, Seven. So that's 30 years good. 20 versus years bad. 23 years. He's on his way out. Not 23 years, that's like 15 years if it's late 90s. Oh, yeah. yeah. What year are we in? <laughs> 2012. Oh, yeah. oh, he's halfway there. Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's not a great ratio. No, <laughs> Let's be it's honest. getting worse. It's getting worse <laughs> it's as, not as gonna the get years better. go on. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that it doesn't seem like a direct sequel to that makes any sense. Much as, like, you know, I, I was at the cinema earlier today and there was a big marquee for the fourth technically American Pie film because they seem to have they did a couple of straight videos yeah I d- I'm assuming this bypasses them I don't know okay. unless unless there's something really important in the mythology of the series I think Eugene Levy's probably been in every single one. Oh yeah he's the yeah. only one who's been in all of them I think I think so yeah um, you know it's like god go and make a Christopher Guest film or something you know he really, he really is a feast or famine uh, actor yeah. <laughs> Eugene Levy um, speaking of I mean yeah I mean it's weird because the reason that they must be making with no run is because Brett Ratner loves the film. Mm. But, it's a, but it, it, the remake, the sequel, predates his involvement because it's been talked about for years. Mm. So I don't know. Like maybe he's come onto it now because he loves Midnight Run. But I reckon it's just that he's come on now because someone's offered it to him, and he's yeah. just been like, "Yeah, sure." Because he's like, he's like such a hack. He is. He's like such a. He's not even a journeyman. 
you know, he just basically takes on stuff. Yeah, he's not even one of those kind of competent craftsmen. He's just one of those ex-music video director yeah. hack. Who doesn't? Who got into it clearly just to sleep with as many women as possible. Yeah. Um, and now somehow has a career as a result of that. Mm. Um, Three Rush Hour movies as well. Yeah, and it's not like he's not like David Fincher or Spike Jones, someone with a distinct, idiosyncratic style. I mean, yeah. Anyone could have made any of Brett Ratner's films. None of those films have anything distinctive about them. No. To, you know, make them in any way worthwhile. Um, speaking of... Robert Other than how terrible they are. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's, that's the, his stamp as a creative <laughs> force, is how uniformly bad his films are. While on the subject of returns, who would you like to see make a return to form? Oh, so many. Um, I'll rattle through a few of them and then talk to, to go about the one, one of the ones I really want to talk about. Uh, John Carpenter, I mean, he came back with the ward like two years ago, although I think it only made its way over here. Last year. Last year. Mm. Um, and that was the first one we'd made since Ghosts of Mars, which was 2001. So he didn't make it. And that f- was fucking dreadful. And it was dreadful. I mean, he'd made some episodes of Showtime's Master of Horror, but he seemed to basically have gone away from it. And, um, I mean, the ward is, it doesn't even feel like a John Carpenter film. It, like, you feel nostalgic because it's a film that John Carpenter has made, but it doesn't really have any distinctive stamp to it. Mm. But what I would really like to see is him come back and do a film that you know has the same sort of passion and and uh, intelligence of intelligence of, of the stuff he did at his height. I mean, like I wrote down a list here of what I would consider the the, the pristine run that he had. So from 1974, starts with Dark Star, mm-hmm. which is a, a weird but delightful uh, <laughs> sci-fi. sci-fi. Then you go Assault from Precinct Precinct 13, Halloween, The Fog, all been remade badly. Escape from New York, The Thing, also remade badly. Christine, Starman, Big Trouble in Little China, Prince of Darkness, and They Live. So that's 11 films of, you know, there's not a bad one in there. The Fog's not great, but, you know, there's not... The Fog's a lot better than They Live, I'd say. Oh, I really like They Live. I don't know, I just really like the fight over... <laughs> the 17-minute fight. Over putting on sunglasses. Yeah. But, you know, that's like that's a pretty great run. Um, and, you know, if you could just make one film of, like, that sort of calibre again, mm. that would be great. You know, he could retire, and, you know... But, you know, he didn't. He had the 90s where he just churned out shit. Yeah. Um, and then stopped, and then came back, and then did something mediocre. And yeah. that's not a glorious return to form. Um, Walter Hill I'd like yeah. to see him I mean he's got a film out this year but I don't think either of us are that enthusiastic it's about Stars of Stallone yeah wouldn't be that enthusiastic about it um, Whit Stillman uh, director of um, Cos- Metropolitan Metropolitan yeah. um, Barcelona and The Last Days of Disco uh, he has a film out this year called Damsels in Distress which I'm very interested in seeing I think which Metro- I'm not hearing many good things about no but I still like to see him back yes because <laughs> um, Metropolitan is a great film really really terrific Michael Mann I would say mm. because I don't think he's made a good film since Collateral in 2004 what's he made since Collateral Public Enemies and Miami Vice neither of which both are interesting from a stylistic point of view neither of which are that interesting from a character point of view. if you if you watch them as kind of formalist experiments mm-hmm. like the idea in Public Enemies of filming a period film with incredibly modern up-to-date digital photography. That's interesting. Yeah. I couldn't give a shit about I haven't, I haven't seen it either, I have to say. Miami Vice is just boring. It's just really... And yeah, oh, There's one of the characters of a pet crocodile called Elvis. I can't remember. I doubt it. I think they excise that. Um, I mean, like, his work on the pilot for 
look that he's had, the cancelled look, is great. Yeah. And that's the best thing he's done in over half a decade. For him, that's not really a, it's not really a stretch of bad films he's done. It's just a long period of time where he he's hasn't not really done, done anything. anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so what else have you got? Uh, the one I really want to talk about in detail, or oh, so what is? I'll get to him if it's the one we're talking about. No, no, about. no. Uh, Takashi Takeshi Kitano. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> um, the uh, Japanese actor, uh, director, game show host, game show host, poet, yeah, artist, multi-hyphenate, newspaper, regular columnist. Yeah, basically uh, the. I, I love Takeshi Kitano because there's literally no one like him in the entirety of the world in any other country. Yeah. It's like in England, if Jonathan Ross uh, was also Quentin Tarantino and Damien Hurst and Charlie Brooker, or like yeah, if, roll into one. if like one person was all of these things, yeah. and there isn't there isn't anyone kind of like him at all. Like you, you maybe you'll get someone who will guess right an article for the Guardian who is a filmmaker or is a TV host but they don't do all no. but he like he does everything and he from 1989 when he started directing he'd been acting for a few years he's in uh, Merry Christmas Mr. Lawrence which is a really good film mm-hmm. uh, but from 1989 when he directed Violent Cop which I think has the most accurate title of any film ever made um, apart from Maniac Cop except Maniac Cop <laughs> yeah. they're both very accurate films and Maniac Cop's got my favourite tagline ever which is uh, you have the right to remain silent Forever. <laughs> it's a great one. <laughs> uh, so 1989 did Violent Cop, Boiling Point, Seen by the Sea, Sonatine, Getting Any, which I'm not too fussed about. I don't really like it. It's a weird absurd. I've seen that one. It's a weird absurdist sketch comedy about someone trying to get laid. I'm not massive. It, apparently. That, shit. Yeah, apparently that's the style of his stand-up. He's also a stand-up. Oh, yeah. Um, but then, you know, he had his motorcycle accidents and he came back and did The Kids Return, which I think is a beautiful film. And that's really lovely. Hannah B., also amazing. amazing, probably his best, and then Kikajiro, which is also very nice. So we had a ten-run stretch where, apart from getting any, which I'm willing to admit some people like, I don't. He had a great run, and then you know you get Brother, which That's is terrible. Good. Dolls, which is like weird and experimental, but okay. Zatoichi, which is okay, yeah. but essentially the important thing about Zatoichi is he made a shitload of money in Japan yeah. and allowed him to go on this weird thing he's been going on where he's making these really self-reflexive films like Takeshi's. All Glory to the Filmmaker, which I love the title of. <laughs> uh, Achilles and the Tortoise. Um, none of which I'd say are good films, but they're interesting. And then he came back last year for a film that's not even released over here called Outrage, which is he, him going back to the gangster thing, which from what I hear isn't very good. Right. So I would just I'd really like him to come back and do something like Hanabi or Kikajiro again, because he has this wonderful balance of like real heart in his films. And then he, when you, he does something like Seen by the Sea or, or The Kids Return, they're, they're just really heartfelt and, and beautiful films. And uh, Kids Return I really like because obviously it's him responding to this terrible motorcycle accident he was in and, and kind of breaking out of the clinical depression that he'd suffered from for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And then, But then you also you can have something like uh, um, Hannah B, which is ridiculously violent in some places, but also you know, so heartbreaking yeah. because it's about... Know a hitman whose um, wife is dying of cancer, or yes. his girlfriend. Yeah, uh, and you know, if he could just do something like that again, uh, it would just be fantastic. And I think you know, he is one of the great unre- underrated directors of the nineteen nineties, mm-hmm. certainly in world cinema. And he's just not really done anything great for so long. You know, so uh, and then I, so those are the ones I I had. Um, yeah. I mean, the, on the same token of being 
one of the key figures from 90s and world cinema and in wanting a comeback Wong Kar Wai is probably oh, uh, yeah, yeah. up there because he, he is one of the 90s key directors um, but then obviously he had a you know a bad bit of bad juju with uh, my blueberry nice. blackberry whatever it is yeah. nights, and then he hasn't come back since but he's got a film out again this year yeah um, I'd like to mention John Sales he's one of my favourite directors of all time um, recently watched like last week I watched City of Hope for the first time which is the last of his films that I've actually got to see because it's not available mm. on uh, any DVD anywhere really I you know he hasn't made a good film since probably Limbo so late 90s um, and some of his films uh, Honey Dripper which has got the best set up and when I heard that he was doing a film about the, the, the community that first heard the electric guitar played for the very first time I thought with that cast that he had assembled and that uh, his um, previous with doing films with the social conscience they're very interesting would be the, a great film but it's terrible mm-hmm. it, Honey, Honey Dripper is the film in, in, and it's really it's like a shit TV movie um, and you know he's got another film out which called Amigo, which looks terrible. Mm. Um, I've heard okay things, but right. nothing, nothing better than. It's okay. a shame because he, he, you know, is a key figure in independent cinema. He is a, a you know, was a kind of uh, a pioneer in many ways of that. You know, I'll do a studio job, rewriting a script or something, and then he'll plow that money into a passion project. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I just wonder whether that approach is sustainable anymore. And whether that's why he's run dry. I don't think it, I, I don't think it's as sustainable as a writer, unless you do it right with proper proper hat work. Because yeah. he did Jurassic Park four. Yeah, for a the, long time. The famous dinosaurs can talk and have machine guns mounted on their heads. Yeah. And go on secret missions. Yeah, that, yeah, that sounds yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I think you know, it, it seems easier. For directors, maybe mm. because you know Steven Soderbergh, Soderbergh is a good example. He's kind of the king of that. Yeah, he'll do one weird little film, and then he'll do one like you know big crowd pleaser. Um, you know, like obviously balancing out something like Ocean's Eleven with Solaris. That's kind of the, the major example. The girlfriend experiment with Ocean's Thirteen. Yeah, yeah. So I think I think it's probably easier. Well, the girlfriend to, experience. Sorry, yeah, yeah. I think it's probably easier for you to do that as a director because I mean writing. Unless you're writing loads of scripts at the same time, I don't think it's possible to make a huge amount. I mean, maybe of money that's why it's run dry then, because it was maybe cheaper to make those kind of films mm. uh, back in the day with yeah, your yeah. writing money. Yeah. Um, we've we talked about it before we started recording, um, and I feel like we almost we both uh, feel the same about this, but we're going to be quite controversial mm. um, and suggest uh, Martin Scorsese is a man who's in need of a return to form. Yeah. Um, it's worth pointing out here we're not doing this just to be contrary or something like this is no? this is a, a weird thing that we both kind of agreed to yeah because um, you were talking about how you'd seen Hugo yes uh, what did you think of Hugo I disliked Hugo yeah uh, a lot I I, um, I really I didn't feel like it was a Martin Scorsese film in any way apart from when he well, it was actually when he turns up in it as the man who takes the photo <laughs> of Ben Kingsley I was like oh shit Scorsese oh he directed it yeah. oh okay it's I didn't like uh, Akira Kurosawa's dreams. No, he, he turns up as Van Gogh. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I didn't feel any connection with with Martin Scorsese director. I know a lot of people are saying, uh, and I said this to you beforehand, that you know it's his love letter to cinema, etc. And I'm really not buying that for a second mm-hmm. because I feel like every film he makes is a love letter to cinema because he's so 
Cine Literat, I think, maybe makes a comment slightly about his his uh, ever burgeoning preservation yeah. uh, work that he it, does. It, it is like a, a lecture on film preservation yeah. crammed into a film. But it, for me, it was an overlong, uh, uh, kind of unengaging film with too many characters in it that were superfluous. Um, and I, I just wasn't interested. I was interested in the Ben Kingsley character yeah. uh, and that story. But when you're being driven to that story by a you know a doe-eyed kid who's being presented in really schmaltzy fashion, I mean, he's he's poor. He lives in a clock, but yeah, it's okay. He's fine. He doesn't seem to suffer. Perky. Yeah, it's it's kind of fun poverty. Yeah. Uh, and you know the acting isn't very good in it. It felt like a school play <laughs> at times. Um, and I, 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 there was a there was a moment where I thought, are they suggesting that Ray Winston has been raping Hugo? <laughs> and then I thought, and this I don't know whether this makes me a bad person or whether it just sums up how I feel about the film. I thought I actually wouldn't mind if he was raping Hugo. <laughs> I, I I literally don't care enough about Hugo. I couldn't give a shit. Let's move on to Kingsley and find out, you know, what the deal is with that. There's 30 minutes of Hugo that I loved, mm. which is you know the bit that everyone talks about being great. The, the once they find out who Ben Kingsley is and they delve into his backstory is really lovely, and you you kind of uh, he captures that very nicely. Um, but the rest of it, I, yeah, I mean I'm much, I'm much the shame. I think that the, when it, it gets to that stuff about Ben Kingsley, that's that's really really solid, really very good stuff, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that gets up what people talk about when they talk about love letters of cinema you know that that's that's the closest it comes to that but you know it's you know the first hour or so you know asa butterfield isn't a good enough actor to carry that film on his own shoulders no it's overstuffed with these kind of little supporting characters which are there to add, add you said before uh, color add color but it's not colorful enough and it's yeah. kind of boring um, i would like to see if richard griffiths did a, a bit of an uncle monty <laughs> <laughs> and again tried to rape you yeah <laughs> And, you know, then you've got stuff like, you know, the Sasha Baron, Baron Cohen character who's kind of, he's, he's got this whole thing where he's been injured in the war, which is obviously a very serious thing, but his character's performance is so broad that that doesn't really register. And he's just playing Inspector Clouseau. Yeah. <laughs> just dr- with a different accent. Yeah, with a different accent. And, you know, I find that the, the tragedy of, of his background, obviously having been in the Great War, and it doesn't chime well with the comedy because some, some of the comedy bits he has there's a bit where him and Kevin Eldon yeah Kevin Eldon are, are, are having a conversation and that's quite funny because yeah. he's talking to Kevin Eldon that Kevin Eldon thinks that his, uh, his wife's having an affair, an affair and it so clearly is mm. um, that bit's sort of quite funny but it also doesn't really seem to fit in the film no um, and yeah I think you and I both basically said that um, he hasn't made a great film since Goodfellas no and I, I, I genuinely think that that is the case now. Like for years, I kind of argued the other way because you know he's such an important figure, and you don't want to say that he's off the boil or whatever. But I think you know if you look at the film he's made, certainly in the last decade, like Shutter Island, perfectly competent genre exercise. Interesting to see that he clearly has been influenced a lot by Japanese horror in that film. There's a very sort of J horror, K horror sort of vibe to it. That's interesting. Yeah. There's also a nice nod to the con- the old. Uh, Val Luton mm. films, yeah, but great, yeah, nice one, well done, yeah. Um, the Departed, which you don't like, I like a bit more than you, I think, but it's still, you know, it's it's at best a functional crime film, mm-hmm. admittedly one that's an hour too long, yeah, and was better when it was in 
Chinese yeah. um, or Mandarin or whatever it was. Um, the Aviator, which has its moments, but again, that's also if you know when you talk about all these films being a love letter to cinema, I think that's a much more effective love letter to cinema than Hugo. Than Hugo, but it's also. I think if you're going to make a film about Howard Hughes, it focuses on the part of his life I find the least interesting. Because for me, Howard Hughes isn't... The, the image I have is you know, him wearing tissue boxes and having 17-inch mm. long fingernails yeah, as well. You know, it's, it's him as this kind of like... Or, or him in that in-between period where he was slowly going crazy and seemed to be quite a disrupted, like a horrible character. Like the, There's a version of him that shows up in The Big Nowhere, the... Mm. Uh, James Elroy book in which he's essentially a guy who hires people to kill people. You know, that's that's the Howard Hughes I want to see. This guy has been corrupted. Yeah, I'm not that interested in how he became corrupted. Really, mm. Gangs of New York, great opening twenty minutes. I fucking hated that film. <laughs> um, I know that um, I've just reread uh, Down and Dirty Pictures, the yeah, Peter Biskin yeah. book, and there's a, a really great chapter in there about the struggles to make that film, yeah. and from the accounts that Biskin saw uh, sources, which. Uh, might not be accurate because mm. he has a bit of a reputation of uh, yeah. glossing over certain things that you know Scorsese wasn't happy with it from yeah. you know the beginning it was a, a lot so much was compromised I mean, yeah. Cameron Diaz in that film is dreadful I mean the U2 song at the end also bad um, I, I like the bit where they're the draft riot sequence yeah yeah uh, but other than that I mean I don't even think Leonardo DiCaprio was was uh, up to task in that mm. I felt well, like Daniel Day-Lewis was playing a Panto villain, yeah. Oopsie daisy, yeah. <laughs> Just dreadful. It's, it's fun. There's some fun stuff in there with him, yeah. But like, yeah. Um, and there's a bit where he wraps himself in the American flag. Uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, I not, mean, it's I, not Spike Lee or Roger no, Stone making this film, is it? I would have liked to have seen uh, the uh, version that he wants to make in the '70s, starring The Clash, because that just sounds crazy. That does sound good. <laughs> it's just like it just it just that sounds too too crazy to be a genuinely good film. But it sounds like it also just like. You know, if it's him when he was like coked out of his head and everything seemed like a good idea, if he'd made that instead of New York, New York, yeah, I would have loved that. That would have been that would have been great. Just this insane epic that he made, um, and then you know, before that, what have you got? You got um, bringing out the dead. Bring out the dead, which I like, even if it is just taxi driver and an ambulance. Yeah, ambulance driver. Um, <laughs> Kundun, which is interesting but a bit dull. Yeah. Um, casino. Goodfellas too. Same film as Goodfellas. Yeah, I do like. I do, I do remember being blown away the first time I watched that film. Robert De Niro gets in a car and blows up in the opening scene. Yeah, yeah it's a great opening. Yeah, really, really great. Uh, and of course, the Head of Ice thing is quite, quite iconic. Yeah, um, made me feel physically sick. Yeah, very squeamish. Um, and then you know, Age of Innocence is pretty good. I think that one's. He stretches himself outside of his comfort zone quite nicely. Yeah, I guess um, so. But I mean, it's still not. It's not good for no, it? it's not. Cape Fear, also not great. Formal exercise. Yeah, very, very pulpy. And it has some fun moments, but mainly I remember it for the sim- for giving the Simpsons <laughs> lots, of, uh, <laughs> lots of material for their take-off on it. Yeah. But Scorsese is someone who, um, like you say, is such a key figure. Yeah. Um, and he was so good for such a long time. Yeah, and he went in his period from between probably Mean Streets and, and Goodfellas. Yeah, even his films that weren't particularly good were still interesting enough. Um, but I'm, I'm maybe not including Color of Money in this because that's a mm. bit of a hack job. I'd really yeah. not that at all. But um, and, a, and an interesting example of a sequel that take eight an unnecessary sequel that's mm. done yeah. twenty years after a, you know. Yeah, although part of you wonders if that's. I mean, that I think. 
for him, he probably wanted to make it because he was at that point in his career where he was doing stuff like After Hours, which yeah. was interesting but didn't make any money. Yeah. Or King of Com- Comedy, which is a great film, made no money. No, made no money, yeah. Um, so so I'd say even, even, even his films that weren't successful were interesting, and now it seems he's he's just he's becoming a kind of a commercial director yeah. who um, there seems to be a lot of. Uh, yeah, obviously, his, his body of work is, is hugely important and respected. But the stuff he's doing, I don't. It, it's just not interesting at all. Mm. It's even I can't, I can't even think of any real elements of those films we just listed that I yeah. really think would touch even something like After Hours or yeah. Alice doesn't live here anymore. Yeah. Um. You know, it, it, they're just not that interesting. Just doesn't match up, and I just wonder if he's a spent force. It's a horrible thing to say. Yeah, I think I think he has the potential, but I think he seems to have reached the point now where people are giving him the money that they made it, never gave him in the past yeah, so perhaps yeah. he's not willing to take the risks whereas if you look at someone like you know the contemporary like Steven Spielberg he had a really interesting run in the early 2000s where he did films that were just odd like you know AI Minority Reports um, Catch Me If You Can you know they weren't perfect films they weren't masterpieces but they were odd there was odd choices for him they didn't seem like easy commercial choices really mm-hmm. um, but you know he essentially was you know whatever driven by his muse or whatever and he had the resources to pursue it and he didn't obviously he's the head of a major studio so he doesn't have to worry about yeah. but you know I think you know Scorsese doesn't really seem to be taking risks with his films anymore No, which I think is, is the problem with them really moving off topic of uh, returns to form yeah. Um, should we talk a little bit about homecoming films? Sure. Um, I it's always uh, a real boon dramatically uh, to have someone coming back somewhere for either um, a kind of a revenge reason or a kind of uh, reparations mm. um, reason, and it seems a, a kind of a rich seam of um, of uh, films, and there's a lot of great films made in that. Um, little mini genre as it were um, I watched five easy pieces last night oh, uh, in preparation for this here podcast uh, I hadn't seen it in a long time um, and uh, yeah I mean that's probably one of the best up there isn't it of, uh, of kind of uh, those homecoming type films I mean a lot of people talk about the deer hunter but yeah. I'm not a fan of the deer hunter no I'm not either. it's quite soapy and melodramatic I don't, I don't particularly care for Michael Cuccini in it um, full stop I like Thunderbolt and Lightfoot that's a great film it's a really good film but again, he's someone like if to go back to the Scorsese thing. Once he got given a certain amount of money, the artistry seemed to go out the window a little bit. Once he got carte blanche to make the Deer Hunter and then Heaven's Gate, Jesus mm. Christ, um, you know, he uh, he kind of gets lost in it really. So you're not one of those people who thinks Heaven Gate's a kind of misunderstood. No, it's fucking terrible. No. <laughs> it's always an awful film. Right. But it's you know visually very nice. The production design's great. But you know, the only way I've been able to watch it is in like ten minutes instalments over the best part of a month. Right. Because I watched ten minutes of it, and then it's just kind of like, oh, no, I'm going to do something else. <laughs> I'm going to do anything else. Um, what other films can you think of about kind of homecomings that are kind of particularly interesting? Because I've got a couple that are and a couple that aren't. Yeah, I think um, I think I think you're right when you talk about the the, the kind of two mm, plot modes that you kind of have for returns are people are returning because. Uh, for, for sort of melancholic reasons, like, you know, it's for, for like, a funeral, funeral or someone's died, 
um, or because you know maybe things like in five easy pieces you know Jack Nicholson's character's lost his job yeah. and he kind of returns home for a sense of like comfort or, or, or whatever um, and violent revenge films because you're going somewhere because something bad's happened my favourite example of that would be um, uh, Dead Man's Shoes the Shane Meadows film yeah. which I have pro- that film I have some problems with the ending I think the end was the ending's kind of mishandled but I do love the idea that it is just about you know this guy played by Paddy Constantine, the, the great Paddy Constantine, going back to this small town in the Midlands and just wreaking havoc yeah. against these people who have wronged his brother. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a that's it, it's it's great because it has that sense. It kind of has that sense of the melancholy film as well, melancholic style as well, because it's about a guy who's been away, he's been in the army, coming back to his hometown and kind of there being nothing for him there anymore mm-hmm. because um, he's moved on in his life or whatever and the only thing that's there for him now is revenge which is such a, a horrible and hollow thing to kind of have to go back to and, yeah. and that's the thing that's great about that film is on one hand the, the deaths are cool like you know when he's going around wearing a gas mask and you know he's writing blood on the wall and all that with, with writing things with blood on the wall on. But on the other hand, you know, it's just really, it's a really sad film. Yeah. You know, this guy is going around, like, murdering these people who have admittedly done a bad thing, but there's no sense of, it's not like Death Wish. You know, yeah. it's not, it's, you're not meant to revel in the death. Because really, the film, a lot, the film, a large part of the time is about the terror that the people he's trying to kill are after yeah. are, 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 are experiencing. They are terrified of him, with good reason. Mm-hmm. I think it does play with that idea yeah. of the Death Wish thing, where... You know, you realise up to a point, I, you know, who who am I supposed to be yeah. behind here? Yeah, because those the the guys that he's there to kill aren't really like in the beginning. Perhaps they're quite boring and they're quite caricature. But as it goes on, you know, you kind of get to know them. You don't get to know them very well, but you kind of see that they are people. Yeah, and uh, you you're supposed to think, you know, well, do they deserve to die? Mm. You know, I mean. You, you don't know for most of the film what it is that they actually did and you do know but you do know enough that what they did was bad yeah but the film does ask the question of whether or not they deserve to die for what they did mm. quite pointedly as well on the flip side of uh, the revenge the violent revenge um, uh, kind of film the kind of coming back to make amends or coming back because you've been drawn for some kind of comfort or a family illness or whatever yeah. um, a film called uh, Beautiful Girls mm-hmm. um, have you seen that film? It's a Ted Demi film. I haven't seen that. Um, and it has got one of those nine perfect nineties casts, right? Which has all those people in raw in all those night films. It's got uh, Michael Rappaport in it. Timothy Hutton's the lead. It's got Uma Thurman, Rosie O'Donnell. Wow. Um, oh, who else is in that film? There, loads of like kind of uh, the guy who plays Truman's best friend in the Truman Show. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, that guy. <laughs> There's a lot of that guy actors in there. Yeah. Um, that are kind of those people. Everything. Oh, Matt Dillon's in it. Um, but it's about it, oh and Natalie Portman's in it oh, okay. the reason that's interesting is the film is exactly the, f- the same essentially as Garden State yeah I was going to mention that and Garden State are bad it's, I don't really dislike yeah. Garden State um, well, when I was talking about returning for a funeral that was the film that was, le- was, was in my mind well Beautiful Girls is pretty much the same film with a worse soundtrack <laughs> and when I say worse soundtrack the score is actually dreadful um, it's really kind of over emotive, melodramatic. But he, uh, Timothy Hutton, has a, he comes home, sees his family, he spends a real disconnect there. Um, 
and he has a weird relationship with Natalie Portman, who is 13. Mm-hmm. And they have this kind of strange Romeo and Juliet kind of banter thing going. It's very funny. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Ted Demi didn't do many films, I suppose. Cause he did one film and he died. Yeah. Uh, Double Heart Attack. But that film is well worth seeing for that kind of return to the hometown thing. And I've thought of a film whilst I was just talking that is a mixture of both violent revenge and uh, homecoming for sentimental reasons. Yeah. And that's Gross Point Blank. On my list. Yay! That was going to be my next one. That's, that's, you know, that's both. I watched that again the other day for the first time in probably what... 10 years yeah I really enjoyed it it is it hold, that film holds up very very well and again it's because it has both those sides of it because on the one hand you have the whole um, John Cusack is going back to his hometown for his 10th anniversary uh, high, high school, school reunion, reunion yeah. which also happens to be in the place where he is going to have to commit a hit because in that time he's become a hitman yeah and you, it's just you know there's just a perfect balance between the hitman elements where um, you know he's been tailed by a couple of FBI guys yeah. um, Dan Aykroyd's there as a trying rival. to get him trying to get him to join a union of hitmen and but you know at the same time you know he's reconnecting with Mini Driver yeah. is that correct uh, and Jerry Piven um, you know who plays like his friend from school um, and um, there's that guy who he who gets drunk at the prom and then like tries to fight him and then reads, and then him, reads him a poem, poem. <laughs> yeah um, I just really and you know there's that great moment where he stares in the baby's eyes mm. and under pressure is playing and he yeah. has this kind of re- realisation about the sacredness of human life and you know there's so many there's and then so kill m- someone and then kill someone <laughs> um, with a pen yeah. uh, and you know there's so many uh, there's so many great elements to that film I really, I really do I do really do like that film a lot but yeah you're right it, it has that balance because on the one hand it is you know his relationship with Mini Driver and him sort of kind of realising that what he's been doing all is for the last 10 years or mm. however long is reprehensible and it's never schmaltzy no way. no it's a very there's a very arch kind of wry sense of humour to it um, which I, I I really appreciate I think that's that's aged very well as well you probably add John Cusack to that list of people who's in need of a, a return to form he's someone yeah. who in the 90s and late 80s was doing very interesting he used to have a lot of control over his films mm. I noticed that you know all those films in the 90s that he made uh, he would have a, a co-writing credit on it or yeah, something. Yeah, he did that on High Fidelity. Yeah, well. he did it with Steve Pink, who directed Hot Tub Time Machine, uh-huh. I noticed. Um, but, um, and he would seem to have a lot of content. But now he's just in any old shit. Yeah. He is in big blockbusters. Con Air was where it started. Now, Con Air's great. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. A film that has a pun title like that, yeah. which works on about three separate levels. <laughs> um, and a film that's just, the actors are having so much fun. Yeah. Um, and playing, you know, borderline. And that great line from Steve Buscemi, fine irony, a bunch of men on the planes and a song made famous by a band who died in a plane crash. crash. <laughs> um, and he's a a, 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 down, a, so. uh, a a kind of a raper of corpses, yep. I believe. And yet we're behind him all the way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, anyway, uh, where was he going with that? Yeah, John Cusack needs yeah. a, uh, a return. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd agree with that completely, yeah. Well, let's wrap up this podcast. Yep. With um, a rundown of, we've been asked to each other to prepare a um, list of films that have um, sequels that turn out to be better than the originals. Um, we're just going to compile the definitive ten for you. If yeah. they're not in this list, they're not. They're, not they're, they're terrible. You're wrong. Yeah, you're wrong. Um, so I'll get started with one you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, uh, before sunset. Yeah. I think is actually better than Before Sunrise. Yeah. I think it's the best type of sequel in that it sequelizes something, but it, it is different. It's yeah. a different type of film. 
even though it's the same them walking around it's just a different European city it feels so f- removed from the first film the same characters it's familiar but it's different enough because they're older yeah. and their circumstances have completely changed the reasons why they're in those places have completely changed yeah. and it feels so different it's such a beautiful film the first one that I loved and I think that it would have been really interesting for me to see that film when I was that age mm. and had those desires and interests yeah. and then because I saw before um, sunset at the age that those characters are yeah. and it's a shame I didn't see the first one when I had that kind of burning desire it would have been really nice um, but I, yeah I think that's definitely one. Oh yeah yeah absolutely um, I think Godfather Part 2 is, is. Uh, yeah, no, an is. obvious one uh, but I think I think we need to probe in some of these ones. Some films I've heard of. Yes, yeah. <laughs> the shit munchers really need a bone to chew on. But yeah, and in the same thing, I'd probably throw Empire Strikes Back in there. Yeah. Um, um, I'm going to say Gremlins Two, the new batch. Oh, interesting. Because I mean, I do think Gremlins the first one is very good. Um, what I like about Gremlins Two is it seems to be more of a Joe Dante film than the first one. I love Joe Dante. Mm. I think he's a fantastic director. And I in, love need, in need of a return to form. Um, yeah, I mean, he made the whole, which was quite good as far as kids' oh, horror films go. See that one. Yeah, it's not great, but it's it's it has a lot of the stuff that's good about Joe Dante. But yeah, I, w- I would like to just see him make films because that was the first one for quite. I a love while. the Burbs. The Burbs is yeah. one of my key films growing yeah. up. But you know, I think in Gremlins too, you know, the sense of humour is is a lot higher, but it's it's such a funny film. It's very meta. Uh, yeah, because the they attack uh, they attack Leonard Moulton while he's and Hulk Hogan stops the film. Yeah. <laughs> in the middle yeah and it's just it just has so many great little things in that and you know as far as a sequel goes it's kind of really far removed from the original in tone but that works mm-hmm. and that's why yeah, that, that's why I I can wa- I mean I think you know Gremlins is great I think I prefer Gremlins too because I just think it's more fun yeah. I, could, I could watch it like you know a thousand times and not get bored of that, that one well, well on a future podcast we'll be putting that to the test <laughs> Ed will be set away for for five years to watch the film a thousand times and he's bored of it. Um, you'll, okay. you'll stop in every so often. <laughs> I'm going to throw a, um, a curveball, I believe the Americans call it. Nice work. Um, Re- Return to Oz. Oh, interesting choice. Because, yeah, Wizard of Oz is fine. <laughs> but Return to Oz, that shit's fucked up. It is. I watched <laughs> it um, on New Year's Day and ended up writing an article about it yeah. um, for, for my blog because... I was just amazed by because I hadn't seen it in years. Yeah, and I was just amazed by how terrifying all the stuff in that like mm. the wheelers are fucking horrible. It even still the, scare me. Even the good characters <laughs> are absolutely terrifying. You know, like the character who is a living jack o' lantern. That would be a villain in another film. I know. In most kid film, a like scarecrow, this like spindly, eight foot tallling with a pumpkin for a head. Yeah. You would run a mile. And Instead, the, he's the hero. The queen can take her head off. Yeah, the queen can take her head, head off. The, uh, There's a robot that's got the man from Blue Peter in it. <laughs> um, um, people yeah. turn into objects, yeah. uh, at the, which is uh, a horrifying uh, horrifying thing to imagine, just being turned into an, uh, an object for your whole life. But it is some, some seriously yeah. fucked up shit. It, like the moose head flying thing, it's just like, that's really... And they bring it to life. And just a curious cultural artefact, because water merch... The great sound design director. I don't think he ever directed another film. I don't think he did. No. It was a Disney film, wasn't it? And yeah. it was deemed way too dark for Disney. Yeah. It's also the record holder of the the biggest gap between original and sequel. Yeah. Fifty something years. If, about forty seven. I think it's about like eighty six or something. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. so about forty seven. Forty seven years. years. That's a long time. Yeah. 
Um, I would say Toy Stories 2 and 3. Does that count as one choice? Um, it could be 2, it could be 1. It's going to be 1. Okay. I don't agree with 2, by the way. You don't really think that 2 is better than 1? No. I think it does. I think that it, it, it does. Very good. It does what the third one does as well, which is that it deepens it a lot more. It, it embraces the sadness a lot more. I think the third one is is absolutely heartbreaking in his last 10 minutes or so. Yeah. Um, I was a wreck by the end of that yeah, film. I, so. I, I was as well. I think I saw it on the last day of Glastonbury 2010 <laughs> because they have it as like, they, they always have a special films like that at the first thing and it's usually a Pixar film. It was up the year before it and Wally, and Wally the year before that. Yeah. yeah. So it was, um, so I think that was also, you know, it was five days of drinking and not really sleeping much, but you know. Don't yeah. blame that for the tears. <laughs> you were touched. When I watched it again, also cried. Yeah. But you know, it's, but I think that the second one, you know, has you know Jesse's song, which is a, just a beautiful sequence. And I think I, I do think it expands on the first one. But I think in that the, those three films are all so great that it's kind of hard. Like it, I think improvements from them are incremental yeah. at most. It's not like I'm not when I say the second one's better than the first one. I don't mean you know Toy Story's shit. Yeah. Toy Story's great. Toy yeah. Story is like one of my favourite films. Toy Story 2 is also one of my favourite films. Toy Story 3 is one of my favourite films. It's one of those rare trilogies that yeah. all of them are great. Yeah. And the thing that's... The, the great exact thing with Toy Story 3, and I think, you know, why it's such a, an exemplary sequel in a lot of ways, is when you add it, it makes the other two seem incomplete. Mm. Like, before it was released, I don't think anyone felt that the, the story of the first two was incomplete. When you see the third one, you just look at the first two and say... Of course, there's like a third chapter that needs to be added. You have to see what happens to these characters, and I think that's something that most sequels don't aim for. Really, most sequels don't aim to put a cap on it. It's very interesting that we talked at the start of this podcast about reasons that sequels are made financially. Mm. That sequel was made to stop a straight-to-video sequel a, a, a cheapening shitty, a the original. Sequel, yeah. Um, which is, you know, really interesting. And uh, there will be a Toy Story four at some point. Mm. It'll be horrible. Yeah. Um, um, okay, I'm gonna pick. Um, I'll throw another obvious one in there. Uh, aliens. Okay, sure. Because, I, would, I would agree. Because um, I mean, um, Alien is great, mm-hmm. but Aliens is a different type of film. It's again, it's it's taking it and moving it somewhere. Else. Alien was very much a horror film. Yeah. Aliens is very much a war film. Yeah. A, a kind of war action film, and um, I I've seen that film way more times than I I you know care to yeah. care to remember. I think that. Um, the last, not the last film, it's the, the, from the bit that's almost in real time where she goes back onto the planet yeah. to rescue Newt is, I think, some of the most tense and breathtaking action cinema I've ever done. Yeah. Which is annoying because Cameron's a cock now. Yeah. But yeah, and that is so uh, tight. Yeah. I mean, the whole film really is just one of the most perfectly paced action films. Oh, it you is. have that first hour which is mm. all build up yeah. and it's full of dread because you know because it's called aliens yeah. that aliens are going to show up and we've met the alien already yeah. so it's not so we know we know what this thing can do we know that Ripley knows what it can do which she's going along anyway and you get to see the wonderful thing about it is you get to see the bravado and the hubris of the Americans going in mm-hmm. or the, the Americans the Marines but you know it's, it's obviously a Vietnam parable so you know Oh, is it? I'd say, oh, I'd say it's somewhat. I didn't pick up on that. <laughs> um, but, you know, seeing their sort of hubris build up and being allowed to know the characters means that when 
shit hits the fan. Mm. A, there's there's kind of a certain degree of schadenfreude there because you're like, you should have listened to Ripley. Yeah. But also you feel you know these people and you do care about whether or not they're going to make it to the end, which obviously most of them don't because <laughs> it's that sort of film. They do send, thinking about it, they do send a, a, quite a paltry force down to uh, deal mm. with this uh, yeah. this uh, uh, problem, don't they? Yeah. Um, go on, you're next. My next, um, I'd probably say um, Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, Romero's Dawn of the Dead. I mean, obviously, those films, they're not... They're, none of them are really direct sequels in terms of uh, character. Mm-hmm. But, you know... Well, they, they can't be. Yeah. yeah. But um, in terms of, you know, his work and in terms of... As a follow-up and expansion upon Night of the Living Dead, mm-hmm. I just think that film is so... Just so beautifully expands upon the idea of a zombie apocalypse, essentially. But also, the way he chooses a different target. I mean, the first one's about, again, it's kind of about America in the early days of Vietnam, the Cultural War, um, and, you know, for Dawn of the Dead, he changes the target, as he did with all of them, um, and makes it about consumerism and, you know, the the growth of the sort of the moral culture and things like that. And, you know, it's just this sort of wonderfully idiosyncratic and strange little film, you know, you've got the little montage where they're clearing up the mall and they're having a great time yeah. <laughs> yeah. and then it, he's got a, a custard pie fight in it yeah a custard pie fight with yeah. zombies which is hilarious yeah. and so funny yeah yeah um, but that that was the, the last good moment of any zombie film ever yeah I think I'm going to go slightly off the beaten track and pick Ginger Snaps Unleashed the yeah. Canadian uh, werewolf series of films I don't know if you've seen I've seen the first one the first one's good solid interesting take on the werewolf thing where it kind of you know kins it to puberty which is something that's not new but it's a very interesting way they've done it um, and it's a pretty smart kind of savvy horror film the second uh, film in the series they made three again the third one goes too far um, but the second one is because obviously one of the main characters dies at the end of the first film yeah but they come back in the second film in a very interesting way um as an or- the ordeal is carried on for the other character who survives and it feels like a very very different type of film I, I believe it went straight to video right. but it is a really smart um, kind of left turn that it takes uh, that keeps enough about the original that's interesting and takes it in a, in a new direction it's almost like uh, American Werewolf in London set in the milieu of One Flow of the Cuckoo's Nest Okay, and it's a really great little film. I think you should, you could probably very much enjoy it without seeing the first film, mm. um, but um, it expands it in a in a way that's um, really interesting. It's a completely new creative team who come on board, and they obviously really like the first one, and just said, right, let's just go and do do our thing with keeping what's good about the original and, yeah. and going off. So I'd very much like to do that. Okay, pick that one. Um, go okay. on, see if you can round us off. I will go for um, for a few dollars more. Sergio Leone's second of his uh, Spaghetti Western trilogy starring Clint Eastwood. Is that a direct sequel? It's not a direct sequel, but again, I suppose it's the, if we're going to include Dawn of the Dead, I think you can include... Uh, yeah. And it, it, at least it has a shared actor, which uh, Dawn of the Dead does not, unless some of the zombies are same, <laughs> played by the same people. Quite possibly. Um, but, you know, I think um, A Fistful of Dollars is a very good film but it's very rough around the edges because obviously it's made very cheap mm-hmm. um, and you know I think the uh, Sergio Leone at that point was 
he was close to the great filmmaker he was becoming. Yeah. But he hadn't quite got there just yet, and the characters weren't quite, you know, as compelling. And also, obviously, he's hewing very close to the Yojimbo um, Red Harvest kind of model, and I feel that that is, while it's a great model to go from, it kind of also feels a little rote because obviously he's following someone else's blueprint. Mm-hmm. When you get to sort of for a few dollars more. And you know he introduces the Lee Van Cleef character as kind of a begrudging ally to Clint Eastwood's characters, and there's just such a fun interplay between the two of them, and that's kind of the thing I like. That's why I prefer that to even the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, which I do think is also a very great film. Um, and I think that it's as, as a, like a quantum leap in terms of filmmaking, like the style of it's so much so much better. Even though it was only made like a year later, it feels like you know he's really learned from making the first one. And the the characterization and the script are just so so strong. Uh, mm. it's, for, for me, that's a, a a really great example of someone kind of learning from the first one and doing something even better the second time around. Um, but yeah, that seems like a very good um, time to wrap the podcast up. Sure. Um, I really hope that's recorded. I do. As I well. can't have another lost cast on my hands. Especially because this was probably better than the first one. Oh, it is. Well, who knows? <laughs> no one will ever know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's all from us. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs> goodbye. Bye.